say happy Easter to all of you, and thank you for coming today. Um, I want to tell you a little story about myself when I was a little kid. Uh, when I was about eight or nine, just about nine years old, I used to go to this church called Faith Baptist Church in Goochland, Virginia. I think it's still there, actually. And Faith Baptist Church was exactly as you would imagine it. Uh, a little cute brick building with a white steeple pointed heavenward, uh, full of a lot of uh, suit-wearing Baptists. Now, today it looks like I mugged a Baptist, uh, but, <laughs> but we wore suits every week uh, growing up in church. And we also went to what we called the Sunday night evangelism service. Anybody been to the Sunday night evangelism service? Now, as a kid, I hated going to church. I mean, I hated My mom quite literally had to drag me kicking and screaming <laughs> out to the car, and then out of the car into the church, and I was the worst kid in church. I caused a lot of problems for teachers in churches, and in addition to that, uh, I sometimes I could find, you could find me sleeping like on the second row, just, just absolutely sawing logs, and one night, we had a pastor, his name was Preacher Scott. I don't know his full name, I just know we called him Preacher Scott, and I don't know if that was his last or his first name, but I just remember that he was a fire and brimstone preacher. And every single sermon in that little Baptist church was the gospel. And it did not matter what he was preaching, it didn't matter what text, it didn't matter what topic, he always landed on the gospel of Jesus. And I remember one Sunday night in particular, he was preaching up a blustery storm. And I remember this because he was sweating, he, he was balding, and I remember as an older guy, uh, he continued to wipe the sweat from his head. I remember thinking, gosh, that guy's sweating a lot. <laughs> and then he would get really red-faced as he pleaded with us, and then you would see tears stream from his eyes as he pleaded with us. He told us about God, about Jesus, about ourselves and our sin, and heaven and hell, and pleaded with us to receive by faith the slain and resurrected king. I'll never forget it. And I went home that night, and I did exactly what Preacher Scott said to do. I went home, and I laid in my bed, and I called out to Jesus for salvation. And I literally did this. Jesus! <laughs> Jesus! You know, like I was calling out to Jesus, and I was doing what I was supposed to do. And as I was doing that, suddenly, without warning, from out of nowhere or everywhere... My space, my real estate was invaded by a mysterious presence. It was the Holy Spirit. And I knew immediately it was Christ. I knew immediately it was God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I began to cry, sob, uncontrollably. Because immediately, as soon as I experienced the joy of God's presence, I also experienced uh, the brokenness of my sin. And just intuitively, I began to confess every sin I had. I mean, I had only lived nine years. <laughs> But I had sinned an awful lot. And so I told God about all the fires that I had set. The ones the fire department knew about and the ones they didn't know about. And I told God about my lust and my hatred. And I told God about my racism. And as I began to confess these sins, let me tell you, the grace of the Lord Jesus washed over me and washed me clean through and thoroughly. And I knew the resurrected power of God right there in that bed as a nine-year-old kid confessing my sin and my faith in Jesus. I knew it. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible for a nine-year-old kid or anyone to know Jesus 
that real. It's possible because Jesus Christ is no longer in that grave and he has resurrected from the dead. Amen? Amen. He has. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection and then we're going to talk about what difference the resurrection makes. So what? If the resurrection is true, and I can prove it to you evidentially, I mean, from a ma- as a matter of history, so what? What effect, what impact does it have on our lives? And we're going to look at those two things today. But in order to make that case, I'm going to use what's called an inference to the best explanation. This is what historians and scientists use all the time. An inference to the best explanation, I'll just put the definition up on the screen for you, uh, is an approach which seeks to assess available sources and evidence and then to assemble plausible explanations. We call these explanatory live options. And then to confer best explanation status on that which explains all or most of the data. So now that's a forensic definition, but let me give you a practical one. My lawn. (laughs) Another opportunity (laughs) to tell you about my lawn. So I got my sprinklers hooked up on Friday, and the guy came over uh, from TNT Lawn Care, and he came over and turned my sprinklers on, and uh, we set it for 5.15 a.m. And he said, these will go off, and no problem, everything looks good. I'm like, great. So the rest of the day, I forgot about it, and it was such a nice day. Anybody get out for a jog or a walk or something at lunchtime? Yes, it was such a nice day. I didn't even think about it raining that night. But sure enough, the night came, and it's a blustery season, so the clouds sort of rolled in, and I thought, oh, I better turn my sprinklers off. But then I'm kind of absent-minded, so I forgot to do that. So then I wake up in the morning, and it was probably, I mean, Saturday morning, probably like 9 o'clock in the morning, and I wake up, and it was like Christmas for me. I bounced out of bed and realized, oh, my sprinklers, yay. So I run out to my lawn, and then it occurred to me, oh, man, I bet it rained and my sprinklers went off. And then I looked up, and sure enough, there were foreboding black clouds in the sky. But... My grass was wet, soaking wet. And my sidewalk was wet. And half of my fence was wet. But not the top half, and not my roof, and nothing coming down through the gutters. And my neighbor's sidewalk was not wet. Their grass was not wet. I'm first. I beat them. So theirs was not wet. So I had to, I have assembled two live options, two explanatory options. One is very plausible. It could have rained last night. But it doesn't look like the evidence is pointing in that direction. It looks like the evidence is pointing to a better explanation. In fact, it's the best one. And that is, even though I didn't see it, my sprinklers deployed, and my grass is wet, and my sidewalk is wet, but my neighbor's is not. And that's the kind of reasoning we use when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. We are inferring to the best explanation, not just inferring to a plausible explanation. Now, some of the competing explanations, they're plausible to explain one or two details in the story, but not the whole account. So what I'm going to give you is the cumulative case today for the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at that. And I'm going to give it to you through an acronym that I developed. It's just the acronym RISEN. And if you want to write these down, just the words uh, that correspond to the acronym, it'll help you to remember them. And the first letter in our acronym RISEN is R, and it stands for the reluctance of the Jews to believe in a crucified Messiah. Why is this so important? Because lots of cultures uh, practice crucifixion, lots of them. The Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, those in India, ancient India, ancient Germany, Britain, 
uh, you name it. Cultures practice some for, form of crucifixion or execution by crucifixion. But by the time it got to the Romans, they had honed it to a fine science. And it isn't just that they figured out how to prolong your torture on a cross. It's that they figured out how to make it a cultural stigma. That is to say, if you were crucified, you were not just a criminal whose life got taken away. You are a criminal, and now your family is forever shamed. Nobody associates with a man crucified on a Roman tree. No one. And nobody ever remembers a man in history who was crucified on a cross. And how ironic that the most famous man in history... The most famous man who has ever lived was crucified on an execution device that was designed to wipe his memory off the face of the earth. Why is that? Well, Jews certainly wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Most of them could not accept the idea of a crucified Messiah. Why? Because they believed in the Torah. And what does Deuteronomy 21 say? Verse 23, it says this. I'll tell you. It says, cursed is anyone who is executed by hanging on a tree. And the Jews didn't want to be cursed. They wanted to be blessed. They wanted to be the blessed people. And God said, you're cursed if you hang on a tree. They were good students of Torah, but they were not good students of the prophets. Because I, in Isaiah 53, this is precisely how God says he is going to send the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And they screamed that out of their synagogue readings when talking about the Messiah. And so the Jews were not looking for a crucified king. The disciples weren't either because they were Jewish men. The disciples didn't want a crucified king. They wanted a strong warrior like David to come out of the desert and wield the sword and kick Rome out of their country, their homeland. The whole thing is so unseemly, both to Greeks and especially to Jews. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, 22. He says this, Jews demand signs. You know what they like? They like miracles, lots of them. Jews want signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Greeks want a respectable belief system. But we preached the most scandalous message we could. Christ crucified. The Messiah was crucified it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's crazy talk to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, they just know that this is the power of God for salvation, and this, this is respectable religion, to believe in a crucified and risen king. The Jews at first could not receive this. Their reticence to receive this message cries out for an explanation as to how Christianity became so successful. Jesus' resurrection is also an enigma. The Jews did not believe in the resurrection of an individual. They believed in the resurrection of the nation at the end of the world when God ushered in his kingdom age. And here the Christians are saying, no, the resurrection has started in a man. He is the first fruits of resurrection and all who believe and trust in him receive resurrection life now and they receive a resurrected body at the end of the world. And so this was not a religion that a Jew would have made up. No Jew was sitting around thinking, hmm, how can I come up with an idea of a crucified and risen Messiah? Nope. 
But his resurrection was actually still in that passage, Isaiah chapter 53. Again, the Jews had screened this out of their synagogue readings. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. The reluctance of the Jews cries out for explanation. And we believe that Jesus' actual resurrection is the best explanation. Number two, the second letter in our risen acronym is I, which stands for the initial eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Now, I say initial because Jesus actually did appear to 500 people. We don't know most of their names. Paul will say this here in a couple of minutes. We'll look at that passage. So about 500 people at the time Luke wrote his gospel, he could go and he could interview the eyewitnesses at his time, during his time, who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. But I'm thinking in particular of the women. Why the women? Because unlike us, they didn't live in an egalitarian society. Uh, You and I live in a society where we have equality of the sexes, or we're supposed to, at least in principle we do. But in this world, they did not. Women were down here. Men ran the show. They ran the world. And women were treated like chattel, property. As a matter of fact, their testimony was not acceptable in a court of law. And even if they were allowed to testify in their own divorce proceedings, if they showed up with evidence of his infidelity, all the husband would have to do is show up to court and controvert her testimony, even though she had the evidence. And her testimony was thrown out because she's a woman. And look at the Gospels. All four of them tell us that it was women who first saw Jesus. Now, who's going to put that in the story if you want to make it credible? Who's going to invent a detail like that if you're trying to impress all of your readers and your hearers? In that ancient world, that's not an impressive detail, but it's a factual one. And you know what I love about the women when they find the empty tomb and they see the angels and and Jesus appears to them and he says, no, don't touch me. I haven't been to the Father yet. You know what I love about that? Is they accept that immediately. They only need one revelation. The men, Luke says, over a period of 50 days, Jesus gave them many convincing proofs. It's, we're, they're guys. You know, they're thick. They're dense. And they need a lot of convincing proofs. But the women, they believe the first sight. Here's how Luke puts this in Luke chapter 24. He says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, I love that line. Pondering this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you he was still, when he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. And who were the women? Who were they? Here they are. It's this group of women right here. It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them. Other women with them. It even names them. And then we have the early disbelief of the apostles. So there are only 11 left. 
And so the women come back and tell them the story. We, we have seen him. He is risen. And they're like, shut up. No, he's not. That doesn't happen. Right? They don't believe it. Their reluctance to receive this testimony of the women. And then Jesus appears to them behind closed doors. Now, Thomas, also called Didymus, is not there. He's out shopping for a kosher dinner in the marketplace, and he's not there, and Jesus appears to them, and then when Thomas comes back, they say, Thomas, he was here. <laughs> he was here. He's alive. And Thomas's response is total incredulity. He's like, nuh-uh. Here's what he says in John chapter 20, verse 25 and following. He says, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He doesn't say I cannot. He says, I will not. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Now, I imagine he appeared right behind Thomas. (laughs) And all the other guys are like, (gasps) and then he says, shalom aleichem. Peace be unto you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger right here, Thomas. Feel that? Thomas, put your hand in my cloak. You feel that? And I can imagine Jesus saying, hey, hey, Thomas, feel those divots in my crown. You feel that? Yeah, I'm resurrected. I'm the glorious king. But I kept those scars just for you. Just so you would know. You would know that you know. And Thomas, what is his reply? My Lord and my God. Well, wouldn't you? I sure would. But here are these men who need convincing. These men are not ready to concoct a story about a crucified and risen Messiah. Jesus has to appear to them multiple times in varied ways to convince them, I am here. I am risen bodily from the dead. And then you have the extended eyewitnesses. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, uh, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. And and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. At the same time means in the same season, within the same period of time. The third letter in our risen acronym is S. S which means the success of the early church. Against all odds and against all reasons to the contrary, this early church not only survived, but it flourished and it grew and it caught like a wildfire in Rome. Rome, a culture that is hostile to illegal religions. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard of the Bacchanals? Bacchanalians? Yeah, the Bacchanalians, some of you seminarians have for sure. Uh, yeah, they were a weird cult that believed that Bacca was a living God. Rome got tired of that. So in 186 BC, Rome gathered them all up or found them all, hunted them all down and executed them all and put them on crosses. And in 186 BC, the religion of Bacchanality died. How about the Druids? Have you heard of the Druids? Yeah, yeah, we've all heard of the Druids. Uh, When they stormed Britain, ancient Britain, uh, the Druids were there, and they were weird. They were practitioners of the magic arts and uh, the occult, and they practiced human sacrifice. And look, they were too weird for Rome. Let's put it that way. That's how weird they were. And the Romans decided, we don't like them. Let's kill them. And so they, they rolled up 
on their shores. And you know what the Druids did? They didn't even come out with sticks or swords or pitchforks. They came out and tried to hurl supernatural curses on them, hoping that the Romans would just deteriorate and die right there. The Romans did not. The Romans rolled over them, killed them. And in 60 AD, Druids were done. How about the worshipers of Mithra or Dionysus? I could go on and on. I mean, we're talking about a culture that is exceedingly efficient at destroying new religions that it doesn't like. So how in the world is it that Christianity, this fledgling religion who believes in a crucified Messiah and a risen Savior, <laughs> with no power and no influence and no money, spreads like a grass fire across the Roman world? It's because we are an unstoppable force. That's why. It's because empowered by the Holy Spirit with this gospel of Jesus, we go across the world and this message of salvation is so, so, uh, it, is, it is just so available, so accessible and people want it. And a guy named uh, Decius, he was a Roman emperor, uh, emperor. He decided he was going to do the same thing that had been done to every other religion. And during his reign, he was going to wipe Christianity off of the face of the earth. He was followed by Diocletian, and Diocletian decided he was going to do the same thing. They created a lot of Christian martyrs. At the end of Diocletian's reign, Decius and Diocletian, there were twice as many Christians as they started with. They failed. And then within a few short years, Christianity became the state religion of Rome. Think about that. Why is that true? What accounts for the meteoric rise and the stratospheric success of the Christian faith? There is no reason for it to exist at all. A Jew wouldn't invent this. And there's no reason for it to be successful whatsoever. But it is. It cries out for an explanation. The fourth letter in our risen acronym is E, which stands for early creeds. Now, some have imagined that what happened was there's this original story of Jesus, right? So there's this original story of, of the uh, illiterate peasant Jesus who went about doing good and basically being a good proto-hippie <laughs> and spreading peace and flowers. But then uh, later Christians actually took the story and they, and they superimposed this idea of crucifixion and resurrection on top of the, Jesus, the true Jesus story. And it's developed much later. It's a legendary development. But here's the problem with that. Is that scholars have found the earliest creed of Christianity and Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 15, which by the way is a very, very early book in the, in the middle of the first century. And the creed that he uses goes all the way back to within five years of the crucifixion event. Scholars know this now. And here's the creed. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha, and then the twelve, that's Peter, and then the others. Now, scholars have traced this back to a creed that Paul apparently borrowed from the early church in a story that Paul tells in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I got converted and here's what happened. I went back to Jerusalem to confirm the story, to confirm that my gospel that I received directly from Jesus was the same as Peter, James, and John. And on this fact-finding mission, he confirmed it's the same gospel. And guess what he got when he got there? He got this creed. So within the first few years of the Christian faith, they already believed that Jesus had been buried, was died, and resurrected from the dead. That, that can't be explained. 
other than the fact that they believed it. They believed it to be true at a very early stage. So there's not enough time for myth to creep into the story, and there's not nearly enough time for this legendary development. The fifth letter in our risen acronym is N for no good competing explanations. Now, let me reiterate, any one of the explanations given for Jesus' resurrection is plausible to explain one or two details, but none of them can account for all of the data the way the actual physical resurrection of Jesus can. So I'm going to give you a few of the most prominent ones. The first one is the stolen body. This is the one the Sanhedrin trotted out. In fact, they concocted this explanation before Sunday morning because they were worried. They did not realize that the disciples would be dealing with PTSD, and they did not realize that the disciples would be cowering in fear and had absolutely no expectation of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. They wanted a a Jewish warrior just like the rest of the Jews did. So who has incentive to steal the body? Certainly not the Roman guards. I mean, the Ro- one Roman guard is trained to dispatch 15 uh, ordinary men. So now here we have 11. After Judas' death, we only have 11 left. And we have two guards. So the idea that the disciples came and overpowered these guards and somehow rolled this tomb away and stole the body is kind of ridiculous. This wasn't their expectation. They did not want a risen Savior. They wanted a warrior Savior, savior just like every other Jew. What about the misplaced body? This is the funniest one. So scholars are serious about this. I mean, there are some skeptical scholars who would say, well, maybe they just ended up at the wrong tomb, and they ended up at an empty one, and they thought that was the one where they put Jesus. Here's the problem, is the vast majority of historians accept Joseph of Arimathea as a historical character. Joseph of Arimathea is for real. That dude existed in the first century. This is his family tomb. He knows where his family tomb is. Look, I only visited my dad's grave one time when I was in Virginia, and I'm pretty sure I could get back there. You know where your family tomb is. So the misplaced body is kind of goofy. What about a legendary myth? Again, we ruled out the idea that the tradition had been developed later and sandwiched or anachronistically pulled back into this time period because we have these very, very early creeds that date within five years of the event. What about intentional deception? Well, this one is plausible. Uh, Religious leaders deceive people all the time, don't they? I mean, can you think of some now just sitting right here? You probably got some. I'm thinking of David Koresh. I'm thinking of Heaven's Gate. I mean, I'm thinking of people who really actually deceived some people and got them killed. I remember Jim Jones back in the old days, you know, was drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, that, that stuff is real. Here's the thing. People die for what they believe to be true all the time. People die for what they believe to be true. There's lots of examples of that, but no one will die for what they know is a lie. And the disciples were in a position to falsify the account. The disciples and their disciples were in a position, this 500, this group of 500 eyewitnesses were in a position to falsify it and say, oh, actually, no, I know where the body is. And when the heat is turned on of persecution and the threat of death, you better believe one of the 500 would have cracked. But they don't. Nobody will die for what they know. No is a lie. No one will do that. So I don't think intentional deception is really a plausible argument to explain none of these arguments, none of these explanations can explain the reticence or the reluctance of Jews, particularly the disciples, to accept the crucified Messiah. Jesus had to talk them into it even in his resurrected state. Or the initial eyewitness testimony of women, testimony that was considered discredited. 
That's not the kind of thing a later scribe would insert into the story. They're just not going to do that. Or the successful rise of the early church. Or these early, early original creedal statements of the church. These explanations don't compete very well. So, the best explanation, I infer, is that Jesus rose from the dead. He is a risen, vindicated Lord. But it's not the best evidence. I'm going to give you the best evidence. Can I tell you what it is? It's not in my acronym. Oh, I wish it was. I tried to fit it in, but it can't be. Here's the best evidence. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, and the Bible says he ascended to the Father, and you can experience his resurrection power right now on the inside. You can experience his hope. Let me tell you something. You and I can't hope in anything else in this world. I'm thankful to God for technology and medication. I'm thankful to God for technology and medication. Absolutely. I thank God every day for it, but that's not my hope. My hope is in nothing other than the resurrection of Jesus. I am thankful to God for the, for the promise of a long, productive life. I hope I live well into my 80s, maybe even my 100s by the time I get there, and they can just print me out a new heart, you know, on a printer. I hope I do get to live a very long life, but that's not my hope. My hope is the resurrection of Jesus. And if your hope is in anything else, you have your hope in something that's false. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant about the kind of suffering we endured. Brothers and sisters, about our troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia, we were under such great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Have you ever been there? He said, we, we were under such pressure that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Can you empathize? But this happened, why? That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We rely on God who raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead and the God who promises us future bodily resurrection at the end of the world because we believe in him and right now we receive resurrection life. Tell you a final story. In 1993, the New York Times did a story on a lady named Adele Gabori. Adele Gabori was an elderly lady, and as she was getting up in years, she couldn't take care of her property. But her neighbors loved her. They thought she was awesome. So they all got together and decided to pitch in. And they mowed her grass and fixed her shutters when the wind blew them off, and painted her house and fixed her roof and her gutters. All of it. They just kept the place looking perfect. But they hadn't seen her in a long time. And they would collect her mail and slip it through the, the door slot. And one day somebody got her mail, a bill, and, uh, that was, looked way overdue, and slid it through the slot and it wouldn't go through. And then they looked in there and there was a mound of mail there right in front of the door. So they called the cops and then they pushed the door open and they found Miss Gabori laying in her kitchen floor with the phone in her hand and she had been dead for four years. It does not matter what you do to try to keep up appearances. It does not matter what you trust in to keep your external life looking good and curated for other people. You may trust in religion, you may trust in your work ethic, you may trust in a very good moral life, but if there's a dead person on the inside... Nothing, nothing you trust in is going to solve that. Only the resurrection life and power of God. And you don't have to wait to the end of the world to experience resurrection. You can experience the life of it right now. Will you pray with me? 
Bow your head, close your eyes, please. If you're here and you're in this service and you have been doing just that, kind of trusting in stuff, trusting in yourself, trusting in your own intellect, trusting in your own whatever it is, just trying to keep the house in shape, but you realize on the inside there's a dead person and Jesus invites you to life and he invites you to the free gift of exchanging your death for his life, your darkness for his truth. Would you do it right now? I'm going to tell you what Preacher Scott told a nine-year-old boy many, many years ago. Confess your sins. Confess your sins to him and him alone. Confess the truth about Jesus of Nazareth that he is buried and risen from the dead. Confess it. God, we do. God, we put our empty hand of faith in your hands. We put our lives, we entrust our lives to you and you alone because only in you is their hope and only in your resurrection is their life. And we receive it, we accept it. And God, would you just let the grace, the free grace of salvation wash over us today? Let it wash. Wash us clean of all the sin and the iniquity that you died for and you paid for and you paid the penalty and took God's wrath. Would you do it today? We are yours. I am yours. In Jesus' powerful name. Amen.